The following is a presentation of Broadway Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. For additional media, visit broadwaychurch.com. Let's review our journey so far in the book of Revelation. Remember, the author of the book of Revelation is the Apostle John. He probably wrote it, scholars figure, around 96 AD. John was quite elderly at that point in his life. And uh, he's writing this from the island of Patmos, still an island today, just off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And uh, it was, think of it as the Alcatraz of the first century. And he was there because he was in prison for his, essentially, his refusal to be part of the Caesar worship cult. And uh, many thousands were martyred for not doing that. Why John was not martyred and just put in prison, we don't know. Perhaps it was the Romans' way of saying, oh, we don't want to make a martyr out of him. Uh, We want to simply just put him in prison. By the way, we've learned through this series that the word martyr is actually first used in the book of Revelation. Uh, A few verses ago, we discovered it. First used in the context of someone who dies for their faith. So, that's the author, the Apostle John. We learned that there are three literary genres represented in the book of Revelation, if you remember. We learned that, uh, we learned that it's, uh, the genre is sort of the, the type of, of literature that you're dealing with. We learned that apocalypt, it's an apocalyptic document, meaning it was a type of document that was very popular between, let's say, 100-200 BC and about 1 or 200 AD. Um, where it's a document, apocalyptic literature is a literature that uses all sorts of symbolism. Daniel and Ezekiel were apocalyptic documents uh, where they use all sorts of uh, symbols and colors are symbolic, numbers are symbolic. It's a a very graphic uh, description uh, of reality, all very imaginative and very visual and emotive, seeking to communicate a message through... um, it's almost like a science fiction type of, of document. But it's also a prophetic document as far as its style or genre, meaning it's God speaking into the lives of people and also speaking about the future. And it's, but it's also simply a letter. It was a letter written, just like Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, and so on. These are all, and 1 John, 2 John, th- these are all letters were written by a specific person to specific people at a specific time for a specific reason. And Revelation is a letter. It wasn't just this general, I'm going to sit down and write something for people 2,000 years from now so they can figure out if it's Iraq or Russia or who the Antichrist is. That's not what Revelation was written for. It was written as a letter to people in the first century responding to a situation they were experiencing at that very moment. Okay, so that's what we've learned so far. Let's remind ourselves. Also, we've just come through the first three chapters and we're about to turn a huge corner in this book. In the first three chapters, we learn that Christ was specifically and personally addressing seven churches in his region. And uh, they were experiencing various levels of difficulties and and persecution, some from within each congregation, some from uh, Jewish synagogues in their cities and regions, and some from their local government um, were causing the difficulties and the persecution. And these churches, these seven churches, were being warned that there's an increased level of intensity and testing that's coming. And those who are victorious are going to be the ones who overcome in the present and oncoming strife. And so let's remember that the seven letters, the, the seven letters, the, 
seven mini letters involved in this big letter, but the seven mini letters serve as the immediate background for everything that follows in the book. We need to remember that. Everything that follows now is not some completely different book. It's all based upon or in response to or built upon the foundation of what we've just studied over the last several weeks. So because you folks in these seven churches are experiencing these different things, now let, 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 let me tell you this in response to that. So it's John's recognition that the churches are headed for a time of severe trial that helps us to make sense of not only the book as a whole, but the next vision that we're about to deal with in particular. So there's an intensity building. There's a strife that's building. People are beginning to die for their faith. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. So they're thinking, what's going on? And just when they were tempted to look within and to look around them for the answers to what's going on in our world, the scene changes, as your outline says. And John gets a new vision or a new aspect of the vision unfolds. And he changes from seeing Jesus standing amongst the lampstands, you know, the seven churches, and now he is escorted into the throne in heaven. Now here's the thing. Most people stop reading at the end of chapter 3 when they're dealing with the book of Revelation. And they skip to the conclusion of the book. But what happens next, particularly in next chapter 4, 5, and 6, is one of the most... Prof in fact, what we're going to deal with today, what happens today, is one of the most profound moments in the whole Bible. We're about to dive into the deep end of the apocalyptic nature of this letter. And so we're about to be swamped with symbolic language and symbolic pictures. But here's the thing. I'd like you to experience this passage as the original and intended recipients would have experienced it. Having it read to them. Them listening to it. Letting the words kind of just wash over them. And the images inspire their imaginations. Dr. Gordon Fee, uh, who was a professor regent here, a, a Pentecostal scholar, he, he wrote this. He said, let the words speak to your imagination, not to your literal sense of reality. So sit back and listen to what John describes. That's what I want you to do. I'm going to read the next passage to you. Maybe close your eyes and just allow the vision to fill your imagination, all right? So let me read this to you. Um, starting at Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this, after seeing Jesus amongst the lampstands and him reciting you know, things to each of the seven churches, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. 
Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, and the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was, it was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That's a powerful vision. Let's go back to chapter four, verse one. He says, after this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So as your outline says, John is suddenly given access to another dimension. He's enabled to see the fuller reality. 
He's able to see the fuller reality. Remember, revelation, apocalypsis, the Greek word means unveiling or pulling back the veil. Pulling back the curtain so you can see what's really going on. Now what John sees in chapters 4, 5, 6 are going on, understand this, they're going on at the same time as what John, as when John was writing in chapters 1 to 3. Meaning, we just got the view from the earth and now here's the view from heaven. It's almost, almost like an instant replay at a hockey game or a football game or something where a play happens and we get this view and now here's another view of that same play from a different angle. That's sort of what's happening here. Here's the view from heaven. Here's what's going on right now in the heavenly realms. And by the way, note the promise there in that first verse. I will show you what must take place. Keep that tucked away in the back of your mind. Number two on your outline, John sees someone sitting on a heavenly throne. So he sees someone sitting on a heavenly throne. It says there in verses two and three, um, at once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Now, throne is a symbol of sovereignty. Um, sovereignty meaning supreme power or controlling influence. That's what a throne symbolizes. And so the throne in heaven is absolute sovereignty. So as your outline says, God's people would need the assurance. They'd need the assurance of his complete, his absolute sovereignty. When you're going through a difficult time, a difficult moment, and, and I've had these moments in my life where I, I'm in the midst of a difficult time and something's happening in my home, my life, my family, and I just say, okay, God, I trust you. Those are the words that I breathe out in those moments of stress or tension. God, I trust you. I don't understand what's happening here, but I trust you that you are in control of things. And God's people in these moments need his assurance of his absolute sovereignty. As your outline says, letter B, in classic Old Testament style, John refrains from describing the one on the throne. So he sees one on the throne, but as a way of honoring, particularly in the Old Testament, the second commandment of not making yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or don't bow down and worship it, they don't describe God in, in detail. So he sees this vision, but he doesn't describe it in detail, you know, for fear that anyone would try to draw it or portray it or worship this image. Okay. And he mentions various precious stones that actually adorn the high priest's breastplate when you read the Old Testament, these stones that he mentions. And then a letter D on your outline, 2D, the rainbow appears to serve as like a halo. Okay. That's kind of the vision. It serves as a halo. So he began by describing to a degree who was on the heavenly throne. Then number three on your outline, John sees creatures surrounding the heavenly throne. So he started with number two by just seeing someone sitting on the throne. And then he sees creatures surrounding the heavenly throne. It says in verse four, he saw 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. Now, again, this is an apocalyptic document. Numbers are symbolic. They're either stats or they're symbols, and, and we're leaning towards them being symbolic in nature. As your outline says, 24 is likely symbolic of 12 plus 12, which is the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. 
So it's the 12 tribes of Israel and it's the 12 apostles. And what does this symbolize? Well, as your outline says, it's symbolizing all of the redeemed people of God in both covenants, in the old covenant and in the new covenant. So before this throne is symbolized, the 24 elders on the throne symbolize the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, symbolizing all the redeemed people of God in the old covenant, in the new covenant, before God's throne. So let's read uh, again, starting in the second part of verse 6. In the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. Now notice, like a lion. Didn't say it was a lion. So again, you can't get too literal with this stuff. Okay? He's trying to find words to describe what he saw and sensed. So it was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings, was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and they lay their crowns before the throne and they cry out again to the Lord so uh, notice that they're worshiping God which is our e essential purpose uh, meaning putting God at the center of our existence worship doesn't just mean singing worship means putting God at the center of our existence and it says as your outline says that they lay their crowns before the throne showing that all things come from and return to God. That's what that symbolizes. They lay their crowns down, laying down their glory, their authority. Uh, they're laying everything that in their lives, they're laying it before him, showing that all things come from God and return to God. And then these four living creatures, what's that all about? Well, again, using symbolism here of apocalyptic document. Four is typically symbolic of creation. The number four in Hebrew writing is typically symbolic of creation. You've got the four corners of the earth. Uh, you've got the four winds of the earth. You've got the four points on a compass, north, south, east, west. That's typical in the Hebrew thinking of creation, the number four. And the four creatures likely... Again, we don't know for sure, but they likely represent a collage of all animate creatures. So it's all types of creatures in this collage, like a, a quilt patched together, uh, symbolizing all the creatures that God has ever made before him. Um, let me read a portion from Ezekiel, which is another apocalyptic document where this same type symbolism is used. Ezekiel chapter 1 uh, starting at verse 4. You'll see a similarity here. This is Ezekiel talking. He says, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the earth, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf, and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. 
All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another, and each one went straight ahead, and they didn't turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They had two wings spreading out upward and each wing touching that of the creature on either side and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead and wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or, or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. And as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. And this was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting the wheel. So it's like wheels, one going this direction, one going the other direction. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced. The wheels didn't change direction as the creatures went. Their rims, look at this, if you're a fan of rims in your car, rims are in the Bible. Their rims were high and awesome. And all four rims were full of eyes all around. I mean, I could read more. So you can see this apocalyptic description uh, is found in Ezekiel as well. And he goes on to describe even more of these bizarre creatures. Let's go back to Revelation uh, chapter 4, picking it up at verse 8. Revelation 4 verse 8 says, uh, each of the four living creatures had six wings uh, and was covered with eyes all around. The eyes likely represent the, the all-seeing nature. When there's talk about eyes like this, it's eyes looking everywhere, seeing everything, all-seeing nature. Okay, so John has described who is on the heavenly throne. He describes what's around the heavenly throne. And number four, John sees things coming from the heavenly throne. He now sees things coming from the heavenly throne. He says in verse 5, From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. And again, this is taken directly from Exodus 19, verses 16 to 19. Okay, so he goes from what's on the throne, what's around the heavenly throne, what's coming from the heavenly throne, and then number five on your outline, John sees things in front of the heavenly throne. So the throne is the centerpiece here, and from on, around, from, and now in front of the heavenly throne. He says, in front of the throne, I'm at the second part of verse 5 and into verse 6. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. So again, you can see the symbolism here. It, it's not literal. The seven lamps, these lamps represent the seven spirits of God. Now what's that? Well again, as your outline says, we've learned, seven is the number of divine perfection. Seven is the number of divine perfection. As your outline says, it's the term describing the perfect nature of the Holy Spirit. The seven spirits of God or the seven-fold spirit of God is sometimes a term used. It's de describing the divine, the perfect nature of the Holy Spirit. Um, remember, we learned in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Let me read that. 
Isaiah 11.2, this might be the root of that concept of the sevenfold spirit of God. It says, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, understanding, spirit of counsel, of might, spirit of knowledge, and fear of the Lord. Seven aspects of this spirit. Perhaps that's the root of this, this concept, this symbolic. The spirit of God is called the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold uh, nature of the spirit of God. And then... 5b, also in front of the throne was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. Now what's the sea of glass? Again, sea is symbolic in scripture. As your outline says, the sea is typically a negative symbol in scripture. It's typically a negative symbol in scripture. It's a symbol of chaos and of, of the masses churning rebellious masses. So often when they're talking about the sea, it's not a positive thing. Um, for example, Revelation 21.1, later on, it says, then the new heaven and the new earth, he says, and I saw there was no longer any sea. And that was a good thing. The new heaven and new earth, there's no longer any sea. It's not because God hates water. Because sea is symbol, symbolic, no longer is, is there chaos. No longer are the churning rebellious masses there anymore. Uh, for example, Psalm 89, verse 8 and 9 says this. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. See, seas are symbolic of churning and restlessness. Even in Revelation 13, the dragon stood on the shore of the sea, which is symbolic, we'll see, of the masses. And I saw a beast coming out of the sea, coming out of the masses of people. This beast comes out of the churning, rebellious masses. But this sea here in Revelation uh, 4, notice it's a sea of glass. Uh, this past week, my daughter and I were jet skiing and we were this, we would go to this one specific area in the bay that we were at. And I, uh, Katie, my daughter was driving the jet ski and I was clinging on behind her. And, <laughs> and I would encourage her not to go out into the ocean, but to go into, I said, in, I'd yell into her ear, Katie, look over there. It's nice and smooth over there, you know, and, uh, she's fearless though. But, uh, you like to go under the part where it's smooth, it's like glass, right? Because it's just a nice smooth ride. Well, that's what he sees here. He sees the sea, it's just like glass, clear as crystal. You can see to the bottom. What's that all about? Well, as your outline says, God's presence completely calms the sea. See, this is the throne of God and the sea, which is negative, it's churning, it's the masses. No, it's calm, it's clear as glass. God completely calms the sea. And then we go to the scroll and the lamb. So we've seen what's on the heavenly throne, what's around the heavenly throne, what's from the heavenly throne, what's in front of the heavenly throne. And now John's vision focuses in on the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Read chapter five, verse one. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. As your outline says, the scroll represents the full account of God's sovereign will for the destiny of the world. It's the full account, full account of God's sovereign will 
for the destiny of the world. Now, folks, this is key. Don't forget the promise of chapter 4, verse 1. Come up and hear, and come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Okay? So John would have been excited, getting quite excited with the anticipation of this moment. Okay. I'm being brought into the throne room of God. And there's the, the, the scroll with writing on both sides of it, sealed with seven seals. And that scroll represents what is to come. Uh, there's order in all of this chaos. God's in control. There's a purpose and a direction to all that is happening to these seven churches down on the earth. And what's about to happen. We're being warned about all these terrible things that's going to happen. So here's the scroll which is going to outline God's purposes in all of this. This is, this is excellent. And he sees that the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Now seals were blobs of clay or wax uh, often imprinted with a signet ring. So you've got a document. You've got a, you know, a document like this, and then that document would be rolled up. Okay, so it's rolled up like this. And uh, here's where the, you know, the paper ends or the scroll ends, papyrus or whatever. And then it would be a blob of wax would be placed on it. Okay, and that would or clay. And then often the king or whatever would seal it with their signet ring so it would have their, their insignia on that and then it would dry like that and that would be a sign of authority and it would be sealed up. Well, he says he saw seven seals on this. Okay? So it was sealed with seven seals. Okay? Uh, let's again go back to another apocalyptic document. Daniel chapter 8. Ezekiel, Daniel chapter 8, verse 26. In Daniel's vision, he says, the vision, um, the vision of the evenings and mornings that has been given you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. So seal it up. Okay? And this was, uh, classic apocalyptic literature was this way. It was to be sealed up. It was very mysterious. Okay? Um, the seals were not to be broken. And... In Daniel chapter 12, verses 9 and 10, he replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of those 1,335 days. As for you... Uh, go your way till the end. I don't know why I quoted that. No. Oh, just verse 9 is what I wanted. He replied, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. All right. So remember, seven is the number of divine perfection and completeness. And secondly, as your outline says, the scroll. So what this symbolizes with the seven seals, the scroll is securely locked. Is what they're saying here. So seven is perfection and completeness. And so it's perfectly completed, completely locked and sealed. No one can access the mind of God. No one can access God's sovereign plan and purpose. But that scroll contains the answers uh, that John and John's readers want and need. Okay? So have you ever been like in an exam 
in college or high school or whatever, and you walk into the exam room and you see the professor or the teacher at the front on the desk with the, the, the answer sheet there, and you're thinking, oh man, if I could just access that thing. <laughs> that has my future sealed right there. You know, that's what John's feeling. Whoa, I see a scroll on the right hand of the one on the throne and it's sealed with seven seals. This is exciting. On that scroll is the answer to everything. So he's excited. And then John sees and hears an angel ask in verse two, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now that term open the scroll, as your outline says, is repeated four times in this first paragraph. It is the crucial issue. It's the crucial issue here. Opening that scroll, breaking those seals, opening the scrolls, getting access to God's plans and purposes. Okay? Who can do this? This is exciting. This is a, a huge moment. This is what John thinks he's being brought into the throne room for. Let's read verses three. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. As your outline says, John discovers that not a single creature in all of creation has the authority or ability to break the seals and open the scroll. No one in all of creation has the authority or ability to break the seals and open the scroll. This reality shocked and saddened him. He says, I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Was he weeping at the sinfulness of humanity and creation? Was he weeping at the disappointment? Was it a combination of the two? We don't know. But have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever had high hopes, high anticipation, and then let down? That's, I think, what John's feeling here. But I was brought up and I was told I'd be shown what is to come. And, and there it is. It's in that scroll, but I can't access it because no one's worthy to break the seal. And then the high drama begins. One of the 24 elders shares the great news in verse 5. Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Now, these two phrases were messianic titles in John's day. Uh, let's go to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis 49, verses 9 and 10, says this, You are a lion's cub, talking to Judah. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So this is a, a messianic prophecy. So you are the lion of the tribe of Judah, the one who will finally lift up the scepter and have scepter symbolizing authority. And the root of David is from Isaiah 11, verse 1 and then verse 10. A shoot, you know, a, a shoot, a, a branch, uh, a growth will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And in verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. So that's the root of these two messianic terms or concepts. Now, number five. The next verse, as your outline says, is a shocking twist. 
Folks, this next verse is the hinge upon which this whole book swings. Expecting to see a triumphant lion. Okay? Remember, don't weep. See! Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So, John turns his implication, expecting to see a triumphant lion. John turns and sees, verse 6, a lamb. Looking as if it had been slain. Standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This is an incredible shock, an incredible twist. And it's a central theme of the whole book of Revelation. God's kingdom conquers through sacrifice, through suffering, through dying and overcoming. Just when you expected a lion to come and ravage everything and flex its muscles... Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's conquered. And then I looked and I saw a lamb, bloodied lamb, looking like it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. As your outline says, seven is the number of divine perfection. We've learned that. It's the number of divine perfection. And, and horns is, symbol, is symbolic of strength. Horns symbolizes strength in scripture. So you look at verse six. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So the eyes symbolizing the all-seeing ability of the Holy Spirit, the strength. So it's perfect strength, perfect uh, vision. And this follows John's understanding of the Spirit as interchangeably called the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. We saw that in our study of the Trinity a year or two ago. And you see that in the Gospel of John, chapters 13 and 16. The Holy Spirit is referred to the Spirit of God, also the Spirit of Christ interchangeably. Number six. When the Lamb steps forward and takes the scroll from the right hand of Him who sat on the throne... Everyone before and around the throne erupts in worship to the Lamb. We re read that in verses 7 to 14. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. They sang a new song saying, you're worthy to take the scroll, to open the seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have been made... You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, wealth, and wisdom, and strength, and honor, and glory, and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and on the sea, and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb, be praise, and honor, and glory, and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. 
So, as it says in your outline, the divinity, or the godhoodness, the divinity of Christ is on full display in this scene from the heavenly throne room. If anyone ever doubted whether Jesus is referred to as God in Scripture, we went through this when we talked about the Trinity. Here, again, the divinity of Christ is on full display. The Lamb, Christ Jesus, is standing at the center of the throne. Whoa! Think about that. Imagine the audacity of Jesus if this is not, if Jesus is not divine. Imagine going into the, the uh, into the Oval Office and walking in and sitting on the president's desk, or going to at the coronation uh, of the Queen uh, of England or the King of England, um, and walking up and sitting and sitting right in the center of the throne. And now oh, this feels good. The audacity. No, that throne symbolizes all the authority and the power. Well, the lamb is standing at the center of the throne. And then every creature before the throne fell down before the lamb and worshipped him. Again, this would be all utter ultimate blasphemy if Jesus was not, in fact, God. And notice the escalation of worship. Like these, it just increases in escalation. First in verse 8, the four living creatures and the 24 elders worship. And then many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And by the way, as your outline says, 10 is the symbol for completeness in the sense of fullness. Like 10 fingers, 10 toes. So 10 is completeness. And 1,000 is the symbol for largeness or hugeness. It's like 10,000 is the numerical equivalent of our word mega. Okay? It's largeness or hugeness. So it's, it's uh, 1,000 is 10 times 10 times 10. So that's three utter completeness. Complete, completely, completely complete. I mean, it's complete fullness. It, it's Jewish symbolic numerology for mega, uncountable. Okay? And then he says, every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea worships. So he just escalates from the four living creatures to many angels to thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And then every creature on the earth, under the earth, on the sea, under the sea, everywhere in heaven. Next week, we are going to look as this, at the seven seals are opened, they're broken. And this 144,000 are revealed. Who are they? What are they all about? And that you're commenting on how, as you study this, how the churches, people have distorted it over the ages, the book of Revelation. It's true. And this has been my challenge in why I feared teaching it, my challenge in presenting it, is if you remember the very first week I said, I have learned how little of eschatology or little of end times teaching is actually found in the book of Revelation. We impose upon the book of Revelation all sorts of theologies and structures and so on upon it. And we impose our pre, our doctrines upon it and say, well, you know, so I'm doing my best to just say, here's what it says. Here's how this is variably interpreted. Uh, but let's just stick with what it said and what would it have meant to those people uh, to whom it was directly written. The question is, why would Jesus have told in advance to to Peter that you'll be sitting on the 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I, I don't think, 
I don't think Jesus was giving away anything. I think it was just a matter of, uh, in context, he was speaking to Peter about the authority that they have as apostles. And um, I, I don't see any conflict. So the question is, um, it says at the beginning of chapter 1 and then later that John was in the Spirit. And it's a capital S. And is that the same as when Paul's talking about walk in the Spirit and live in the Spirit? Um, keep in step with the Spirit, all those terms. I, I think it's different... Think of it in terms of a continuum. Um, there is, you can be in the spirit in the sense of being aware like we learned in our last sermon series on how to hear the voice of God. So you can walk in the spirit in the sense of being attuned to that inner intuitive voice and aware of what the spirit is saying to you. So there's that, where you're, that's what Paul I think is referring to when he says keep in step with the spirit. But then there's later on the continuum, there is Paul also said that he knows of a man, referring to himself, we find later, who was taken up in the spirit and was shown visions of things that he couldn't even describe now. And then there's John being in the spirit. There's Peter in the book of Acts 10, I think it is. I think it's 10, where he is, remember, he's, taken, he's in a trance. He's taken up in a trance and shown a vision. Uh, and he then goes to Cornelius' home and preaches to the Gentiles. So there's a continuum here. All of them are in the spirit, but... They're in different uh, dimensions, if you will, or, or different. It's like I can be in the water up to my ankles. I'm in the water. Or I can be in the water completely and it's over my head. I'm in the water either way, but I'm in different depths. The contents of the, the, the scroll, the yes. book of life. So when the Bible talks about the book of life, it's not referring to this scroll per se. This is a, so that's a, again, that's a very symbolic thing. Um, but that would be... Uh, not referring to this. The question is, so is John seeing the church raptured, the whole church before the throne? Uh, is that's what these 12 apostles represent or whatever? Is that your question? Many believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, personally, that's where my leanings are as well. Um, though I have to confess that I don't hold that as firmly as I once did. But it's still, if I had to be pushed into a corner, that's what I would hold to. Just like, But um, there are others. You... You don't necessarily have to impose that upon this, okay? Meaning that is a view that is a very strong view and a hell view. Though, did you know that view only came about about 200 years ago? For the first 1,800 years, the church did not hold that view. Um, so, but, so that is a way, yes, of interpreting this. It's a valid way of interpreting this. But it's not, that's not what this is saying. So you wouldn't get that just by reading this. Um, but it is a way of interpreting that. Brother, you're a street preacher, right? I have great respect for you. He's one of these guys who goes out on the street and preaches and people shout and say stuff and you just stand up for the gospel. So, yes. <laughs> and so, but the bottom line is, when someone, you don't, when you preach the gospel to someone and someone comes forward and they want to accept Christ in response to your preaching, you don't say, you're saved if you accept Jesus and if you believe that Jesus comes before the great tribulation. That's not a crucial element. It's, do they accept Christ as their Lord and Savior? That's the key. That's the, the essence of the gospel. Um, where, when you believe Christ will return and how he will return, I, I think it's periphery. I'm not saying it's unimportant, but it's not at the core of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. There are millions of Christ followers who think Jesus will come um, before the, the 
tribulation? First of all, we have to say there are millions of Christ followers who don't believe there is a great tribulation per se. And we're going to come up against that next week. The term great tribulation. Um, again, that's something that we've sort of imposed upon the book of Revelation. That it's this period of seven years and so on. That's a way of interpreting that, but it's, we've sort of imposed that upon that. Um, so there are some who think the great tribulation is just all the tribulation the church has ever gone through and will go through. Um, uh, so I guess what I'm saying is our faith is not defined by whether we believe Jesus returns for the church before that, in the middle of that, or after that. Those are things that scripture is really foggy about. And um, so it's not an essential to our faith, but it is something worth discussing. But I can have fellowship with anyone along that periphery, as long as they believe Jesus is God and he died and rose again from the dead and is coming again. So these are the seven spirits of God. What does that mean? So that's, it's, it's poetic language for when it talks about the seven spirits of God or sometimes translated the sevenfold spirit of God. So it's talking about the, the seven aspects of the spirit of God. So again, we have to think apocalyptic. Seven is the divine number of perfection. So what he's saying, it's the seven spirits of God, the sevenfold spirit of God. It's the perfect, divinely perfect spirit of God. And as we referred back to Isaiah... It's a title maybe that's picked up from Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 uh, or verse 2. The spirit, she's describing the spirit of God. It says this, the spirit of the Lord, there's one. Um, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom, that's two. Understanding, three. Spirit of counsel, four. Spirit of might, five. Spirit of knowledge, six. The fear of the Lord, seven. So there's seven aspects, seven descriptions of this spirit of God. So the sevenfold spirit or the seven spirits of God's poetic description. So there's one Holy Spirit, but seven, it's a poetic way of describing that. Okay.